Welcome to the Uncomfortable Grace Podcast, a place where uncomfortable circumstances become the very conversations that could change your life. We all have some understanding of what it means to have grace for others, but how often do we demonstrate it toward ourselves? It is our hope that this podcast will teach you how to unpack the plot twists and to ask intentional questions that invite deep reflection when life seems chaotic. In the face of great resistance, we want to learn how to soften, surrender, and see where grace can take us because it is so much bigger than a Bible buzzword. Welcome to Uncomfortable Grace. Hello, welcome back everyone to the Uncomfortable Grace Podcast. I'm here today with the lovely Miss Micah Morgan. Hello, Micah, how are you? Hello, Mandy. This is just a treat to finally be here with you. I'm so excited. Thank you for having me. Oh my gosh, absolutely. I remember when I first found you in the world, I was trying to play it cool because I'm like, oh, this woman is right up my alley. Everything she is saying, everything she, that I can tell about her. I just want to be involved and get to know her more. So I am equally honored and excited to have you on the show today. So why don't you take a minute and tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and help them start to fall in love with you in the way that I did. (laughs) Oh, oh my. (laughs) Well, um, I, am coming to you from Columbus, Ohio, where I serve as a therapist, um, a licensed professional counselor um, specifically, and I do some some work at my church, um, working with our community groups, also known as small groups or worship team, whatever basically I can be helpful with. Um, so those are the two the two main ways that I serve my community. And your involvement is so intentional. I think and I, that's like, I guess what we're going to talk a lot about today too, because as a licensed professional counselor involved in the world of faith and in church groups, you encounter a lot of things that are probably addressed in a very spiritual, like high overview, spiritual way that I imagine you get to bring a very different perspective to by being a professional counselor that carries faith as well. Hmm. Yeah, at least I try to, right? <laughs> it's, um, <laughs> you know, it's what I've noticed is we're very used to engaging with spirituality in like really abstract, lofty language. Mm-hmm. And the more that I sit with folks who trust me with their coming alongside of them and their mental health, the more I know deeply that those lofty abstract words are just not always helpful. They're really beautiful and poetic, but when you're, you know, in the middle of the night crying because of a breakup or because you're grieving or because you're incredibly anxious because you don't know how you're going to pay your bills, um, that lofty abstract language doesn't always really feel helpful. So I do try to, as much as possible, remind us that God did create us in these bodies for a reason, not so that we would detach from them and try to find ways to disconnect from them, but so that we would learn how to live in them gracefully. I love that you said not to detach from them because I feel very strongly that that is the way that a lot of us have been raised, at least in this 
current environment as well to really recognize how to create space for faith, like in a way of, Mm -hmm. if you can detach from what's going on around you, you'll be able to practice your faith really intentionally or really beautifully, blah, blah, blah. Whereas the intention of our faith is so that we can integrate into the culture around us in a way that is impactful and positive and, you know, mitigating harm and all of those, those things. And and that's really where you and I have connected a little bit and where I want to go with um, talking about my favorite, if you can pick a single verse, right? My favorite verse mm. being Micah 6, 8, which I know mm-hmm. you resonate so, so much with. So I'm going to let you share the verse and, and talk a little bit about that, because I think that the implication in the book of Micah as a, in total, but just in six, eight specifically in those in chapter six is so integral and so uncomfortable for what we're experiencing right now, because it would be, Mm. you know, it could be so easy to just say, well, the world is what it is. And, and we know what it is. It's a fallen world, you know, all the, like you said, the lofty high, high language around how to survive and navigate this world. But the truth is this particular passage really calls us very deeply into uncomfortable places and so uh, I would love to unpack that with you. Yeah, let's let's go there. I think what I what I love about Micah is just how frustrated he is with mm-hmm. with what the world looks like and the the kind of progression through the first five chapters um, before we get to chapter six is him really vocalizing that frustration and picking out all the layers of it from, you know, the ways that leadership is taking advantage of their power and how that looks for folks who are, you know, working the land and how exploitative that is. And so, you know, finally, Micah gets to chapter six, and I kind of want to start with verse six, if it's okay, because I think that sets the stage. But he says, "With, with what shall I come before the Lord? and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. It's it's just such a an arresting, not even an invitation, right? It's not optional. No, it's it's like a declaration yeah. of you've got all these ideas. This is what you need to do. Stop with the ideas. Yeah. All that other stuff, all those empty gestures that you're so obsessed with, throw it out. Yeah. God has made it clear. This is what God asks of you. Yeah. I, I just, I love it so much. I wish I could tattoo it on the sky. All right. I, I was just, as I was preparing for this, there's a large painting in our living room um, on just a block of wood and beautiful calligraphy that a friend of mine brought to church years ago. And she is this beautiful artist and she used to have a business and sell her work. And this was a piece that had been, it just says the exact same thing. Do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly mm-hmm. with your God. And it's in the script. She walked across the sanctuary with this, I mean, it's 
three and a half feet tall by two and a half feet wide, this large plank Mm -hmm. and held it up to me. She said, I saw it in the garage this morning and realized I need to give this to you. So I brought it to you. And that day I happened to be wearing one of my favorite t-shirts that says, walk humbly, do do justice. (laughs) And she laughed so hard. It's, it's one of those that just, it disallows us to make excuses. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. how do you feel this verse is received like even and I love the context of it too because it is exactly the same thing I think that's repeated throughout the New Testament of what are we supposed to be doing what should we be how should we behave how should we treat people how should we be ensuring our salvation how do we get through the narrow gate all those questions were addressed right there and made so simple how how in your experience is that handled when people are like, wait a minute, that makes it too easy. Mm, I think what I've experienced is, yeah, I think you've captured it well, kind of this, this worry that these three phrases aren't enough. Like it's flattened the story too much. Whereas I see these three phrases as all encompassing. Um, it really is the the choice of words that Micah has made here paints such a robust picture, right? That we're to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly. And I think what what's beautiful about the contrast between verses six and seven and eight is that there's this picture that that Micah's painting of these empty gestures that you really don't need to be thoughtful to complete. Like, it's pretty easy to go figure out, yeah, what's what's the one-year-old calf that we've got in the back? Let's go grab that. You know, what, what burnt offerings are we going to bring to the temple? Okay, yeah, some myrrh, some, you know, whatever it is. You don't really need to be thoughtful about that. But there's an interdependentness that is required of justice, mercy, and humility that I think until we are really thoughtful about those three words that we miss, we just assume that there's kind of these easy algorithms for justice, mercy, and humility, but there really really aren't. You really have to be thoughtful and curious and connected with the world around you in order to act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly. I think it's really simple for churches to prescribe behaviors that can look like justice, mercy, and humility as well. Mm. So Mm -hmm. I, you know, thinking back in my own life and even looking at the current state of the world, I remember very clearly thinking justice meant being um, politically active on behalf of very conservative ideals that I didn't actually hold Mm. in my own life. And there was this massive cognitive dissonance as a young adult Mm -hmm. trying to understand, well, if this is what justice looks like, okay, then I guess this is what we, we say we stand for, but I don't actually agree with any of that. So maybe I agree for myself that that's personally what I would do, but politically it was, you know what I mean? It was trying to Mm -hmm. make sense of something that didn't make sense. So I'm curious what you would say, how do you encourage people that you work with to start exploring the the true manifestation of what justice or mercy or humility would look like in a in a 
practical sense without being performative or exploring the depths of what it actually connects to and who we are. Yeah. Well, I know where it began for me um, was really being curious about what it even means to be human or what God imagined humanness ideally looks like. And of course, we, you know, as Christians head back to Genesis 1 and 2, to the creation poem to really kind of sit with and in God's imagination for humanness. Um, and there really is a, a, a poetry and kind of this radical truth about being created in God's image, you know, in, imbued with this, this worth and this value that is deeply different from all the rest of creation. Um, and I think for me, inviting people to be curious about that along with me, like, what does it actually mean to be human and to be human and created in God's image? What does it mean to have dignity? And what rights are we therefore owed simply by being human? And how does God invite us to participate in ensuring that everyone gets to live out those rights? Like those are, those are questions that I think Western culture specifically, <laughs> thanks to, uh, I say this sarcastically, thanks to our good old friend capitalism, you know, we are not encouraged to think deeply about what it means to be human. We're, in fact, we're encouraged to, to forget what it means to be human so that we can make a profit and exploit resources as much as possible. But if we, if we really do think about that first, I think what naturally follows then is, okay, if this is what it means to be human, therefore justice, mercy, and humility are so necessary to making sure everyone feels as human as possible. So really, Micah is, is imploring us to disrupt the way the American church has generated <laughs> itself in the last, well, since the day he wrote the words, right? So <laughs> however long, and that is where we find all the pushback, right? Because that's exactly it. We want to say, well, that's that your mm. concept of justice is an empty bucket. It resonates with only the few who have mm. access to power or resources or influence, but mercy and humility require a lot of sacrifice. They require the dismissal of that scarcity mindset that says, if we don't draw them all in, or we don't have a big mm. enough church or enough resources to pay all the people, then we're not doing the work that God has called us to, which is the complete opposite <laughs> like it's so untrue it's mm. even hard to know where to begin explaining exactly how untrue that is gosh and I, I for me I just feel so confused about how we got there like I don't I don't even have yeah you know I try to I try to read all the history whatevers and, and even yes. still it's like but that just is so like when you meet Jesus in the New Testament, that's just so, it's just anti yeah. what we see Jesus doing. Yeah. And it just, it breaks my heart to see how we've 
distorted that picture so much. Yeah. I definitely wonder often if our rise of celebrity culture in the last 50 years has contributed to the way that we've become accustomed to doing church and just being with people and attempting to influence or inspire with sound bites or and just pithy statements that actually have no no grounding to them. The other day I read something oh just cheesy like on Instagram that some pastor had said we don't what did they say? We don't leave the thing behind, we leave the thing behind. And I'm like, what (laughs) are you saying anything? Thousands of likes, thousands of comments. Oh yes. Amen. Fire emojis. And it blew my mind because I thought, but that's it right there. We have no idea what's even being said that we have lost our ability to discern what is justice. What is true? What is good? What is right? Like, you know, the, the beautiful Philippians verse that we want to Mm. say that we stand by and, and yet we champion quite literal nonsense. It makes, it makes it really hard to decide where do we begin to teach about the act of justice and who defines that on behalf of, like you said, protecting the dignity of humanity in all, all actions Mm. taken. Goodness. I think you've really hit on something very true. And I, it didn't really hit me, I think until you cited that example, that there's, there's a lack of like thoughtfulness that we're being kind of bamboozled into. Like, I don't, I don't think if we perhaps realized how unthoughtful we're becoming that we would willingly do it. But there's there's a way that we've been kind of, I don't know, tricked into it. Yeah. That Instagram po- posts like that end up getting so much engagement. And I mean, knowing what we know now about the nervous system and what it what it what it looks like to kind of live in our bodies as humans. Mm-hmm being unthoughtful kind of makes sense because our system is is made to kind of conserve energy as much as possible by deterring attention and you know conserving energy and so i i i know like you know in my brain like oh okay yeah being thoughtful takes extra work so we don't that's not our default but then i'm like okay well knowing that about ourselves shouldn't it be perhaps the work of the church to discourage that kind of mindless consumption of spirituality even even though it does i mean we're still in the middle of a pandemic and so we don't have an abundance of energy but still like just the invitation from the church to be like whoa 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 hold on a second Mm -hmm. don't just consume whatever thing you see with a cross on it let's let's sit with it and ask questions of it but I you know I don't know if that's maybe the norm it's certainly not the universal church yeah I wonder often so this year I've tried to determine to intake only that which nourishes lofty Mm. idea very high like let's only (laughs) 
watch things that nourish our body, mind, soul, and, and heart, or let's only consume things. And I think about scrolling on Instagram or Twitter in that regard of spirituality intake and think maybe we need to actually eat a really healthy meal before we pick up our phones or decide to listen to a sermon, Mm. like rather than fasting, (laughs) what if we did the opposite and made sure we ate the most nourishing, filling meal so that our brain quite literally had the caloric support it needs to be (laughs) discerning and, and ask good questions or have the capacity to raise our hand and say, wait a minute, what you just said flies in the face of everything I've understood to be true. Mm. That, that in and of itself feels like an act of justice on behalf of the church to, wow. Yeah. To say it that way. So how in your community, I'm just curious, how are you involved with the way that, how do I want to ask this question? Let's see. In the work that you do in the church, in your community, how does, how do you see the concepts in Micah 6 playing out in a, in a way that mm-hmm. we could, as listeners and observers of what you guys are doing, that's going well, how could we extrapolate from it to bring it into our communities as well? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I, I, this would be a great opportunity, I think, to voice my gratitude for my church. Um, uh, currently, uh, a member of Sanctuary Columbus Church under the leadership of Pastor Rich Johnson. And my husband and I have been there for three years, and it's just been such a place of healing. Um, and, and really, a large part of that is because our pastor has a passion for justice and for contemplative practices. And he actually sees those as necessarily interconnected, which I think I, I had never, goodness, I, you know, I've been involved in, in racial justice work, for example, for the last six or seven years and hadn't heard that articulated before, that in order to, to act justly, there's a, there's a, a curiosity and an intentionality about our inner world that is necessary. And that, that for me has completely changed. It's changed my life. Um, and I, I would even say that that falls under the category of walking humbly. It's really this idea that contemplative practices address the issue that we are incredibly habitual beings. We, our systems are created to, to work on autopilot and therefore a lot of a lot of our sin is therefore working on autopilot as well. Um, and that flies in the face of, of the myth of Western culture, right? Which is that everything we do is intentional and is a product of the human will. And unfortunately that's not true. Um, but the humility is accepting that there are things for which I am responsible that I may not have intended, but the impact that I have on the world, I, I should take responsibility for that whether I intended to or not. And so the work of justice, therefore, is being curious about our impact on the world and each other and being willing to engage in restorative practices so that we're able to experience our human dignity. Mm -hmm. Um, 
those two things are, are just incredibly intertwined as a result of the way that our pastor pastors. And so, you know, we, we, we do things simply like, you know, there's some local partners that we, that we have within the community, um, some agencies, some organizations that are working with young moms, for example, or from, from people recovering from human trafficking to other things like doing book studies, but not in a performative way, but really engaging in dialogue with one another and making commitments for how we're going to take wisdom from those book studies and actually do it. Mm. Um, but that, but those are things that are just like the, the ways of thinking about justice and humility are just intertwined, like all throughout the way, you know, preaching happens, the, the worship, it's just a thread that flows through it all. And it's such a slow pace. Even as mm -hmm. I'm hearing you describe it, all I can picture is this beautiful measured step. Every time a foot is lifted to move forward, there's such a, a willingness to confess to unknowing. And that is mm -hmm. something that I, I think we are very divided on in American culture, especially within the church is this idea that it's okay to not know. It's okay to be unsure. It's okay to have a diverse understanding of like their gray space to confess there is no black mm -hmm. and white. And what if that's mm -hmm. true? And what if the mystery of God is actually fully unknowable and we're all just grasping at straws that that can, that that unknowing that comes from contemplative practices is something that I think it's so easily frowned upon for the sake of of action and mm. and I, I don't know what do you think when it comes to even the phrase of act justly how do you explain to people it's not about this is that does not mean you know write your signs and stand on street corners and scream about what you perceive justice to be acting justly on behalf of humanity looks very, it starts very internally. Yeah. I mean, it, for me, for me, I, I think it begins with the question, okay, let, let's say you are really intent on, you know, writing your sign and finding a, corner to go press on pro protest on how how do you know which sign to write and which corner to stand on you know i think the the disconnect between the work of attention and curiosity and action is what needs to be healed first in order for justice to have a more kind of healthy reputation um, in the church but there has been this kind of split, right? Like there, that you like you do justice, like you act justice. Um, but it re it requires a work of the attention first to ask what what resources are missing, for example, that prevent this group of people from fully enacting their human dignity. What accesses are creating or lack thereof are creating barriers to this person from being able to make choices that lead to their own flourishing like those those questions we need to get good at asking before we act but 
there's there's such a uh, there's such a kind of romanticization of productivity that gets in our way, whereas contemplative practices say, no, it's okay to sit for a little while and get more in tune with what is, what is going on in your internal world. Can you, can you, for example, sit in, in a gospel meditation for 20 minutes and, and kind of imagine what it's like to be in the gospels with Jesus and get really acquainted with Jesus, you know, his facial expressions and his tone of voice to the point where you can kind of finish his sentences before you go out to the corner and protest? Can you do that first? And I think the more we can say yes to that question, um, the more our justice actually does respond to the needs that are out there rather than the needs we just imagine for ourselves to kind of give us an ego boost. Yeah, the idea that this perspective is very obviously not your just yours, right? That it's beyond, mm-hmm. clearly beyond you, it's part of your community is so encouraging because is not common. And Mm -hmm. I would say that I think you and I have talked about it previously too, just knowing that a faith community exists where this kind of measured intentionality is preferred over the community that can boast big numbers or that can put on the big conferences or whatever that is. It's a very jarring thing to realize because the common narrative you see right now of people who have decided to leave churches or who have been so wounded in churches um, would potentially look at what you're saying in the community that you're describing and have so much skepticism or pain rise up. How would Mm. you, how would you invite them into this idea that is so radical and yet so resonant? Like my spirit right now is so grateful to just be affirmed in no, you're not crazy. All of this, a, a willingness to be incorrect or to unknow something is so valid. Not only is it so valid, it, it harkens back to the garden where the beauty of creation says, actually slow down and stay a while. Don't run out the door to try and change the nations. How did we, how do you invite someone who maybe has spent their entire faith practice on the concept of go out and make disciples of all nations. Cause uh, personally, I feel like that's where we all went a little crazy and started mm-hmm. trying to fix and, and define disciple and correct and modify everything. But what would you say to someone who walks in the door or meets you and says like, no, what you're saying doesn't make sense because it's not making disciples. And that's what the gospels say to do. <laughs> yeah. Goodness. Wow. <sighs> I, you know, maybe I'm feeling myself, <laughs> like I can feel my body reacting to that. It's such and, a big question I'm just, to you, I'm sorry. I know, no, no, no need to apologize. Cause I think, I think it would, uh, it would behoove me to be prepared in some kind of way <laughs> to answer that. Um, but I do, you know, I want to address first the way my body is responding, I think is is reminiscent of, of my own kind of deconstructing and reconstructing journey and kind of that fear of not doing Christianity right and how much that 
cost me. Yeah. And so I, I feel myself kind of reliving a little bit of that right now. Um, but then that, that leads me to a little bit of maybe empathy for this kind of hypothetical person that we're imagining. Because I, I know that, that fear so well. Like I was so afraid of hell. Like it consumed me as a 12 year old. Like it, for I, I look back at my 12 year old self and I'm, I'm just sad for her that she couldn't enjoy friendships and <laughs> certain kinds of movies and, right. and whatever else that were just a token of being young mm. because I was afraid of hell. And so I see this hypothetical person we're imagining who, you know, perhaps walks into my church doors and, and says, you know, you guys aren't making disciples. And I, I think I see that same fear in them, that if they don't get it right, that there is this, that there's this all powerful being with an incredibly sensitive ego that will punish them for it. And my heart just breaks and I just want to listen to them. And I want to let them know that, you know, God really does love you in a way that feels unfair because you can't unearn it and you can't actually work for it either. And I just want you to know that. And if you decide to come back to our church, then we can talk a little bit more about this making disciples question, but I think I just want you to know that first. And, and then maybe we can talk later but I think for me, I've just kind of learned that the, the debate doesn't work. Yeah. It just doesn't work to try to convince someone, you know, actually contemplative practices does make disciples because yep. what you end up doing is you end up loving people in such a just, merciful and humble way mm. that that transforms both you and them. And there typically is a curiosity that comes out of that too. You know, that folks see you loving that way and they're like, huh, what has shaped you in that way? I want a little bit of that. And next thing you know, they have either begun trying to find Jesus for themselves or they end up at your church. Yeah. But contemplative Christians do make disciples. It just looks a little less, perhaps, aggressive. <laughs> there are fewer <laughs> quote bubbles on Twitter. We have fewer followers and... And, and that's okay. Oh man. That's okay. Safer. This is not a world that I want to be Twitter famous in. Not even close. Mm, my, I'm like, my, neither. Please no one listen to me. Um, <laughs> Same. You, you said um, that's a God who has a sensitive ego. And it made me think of if we serve a God or pursue a God that has an ego at all, I feel like perhaps we've created them in our image instead of allowing mm. ourselves to be created in theirs. And that to me is if, I guess if there was going to be a true dichotomy, that might be it for me. The, mm. if I've created God with an ego, then I need to really, really take a step back and recognize, nope, there's gotta be a hard line here because that that puts us in the, in the, in the way. And then we're contemplating our own grandiose ideas of self and 
and thought processes. I loved your response, by the way. That is, I think, the most humble and beautiful way to respond to someone who, I mean, we say that this is a hypothetical person, but the truth is I know people who are listening that are in that boat who have said those words to me, who I, you know, share Mm -hmm. some kind of contemplative teaching that I've been ruminating upon and am met with just voracious arguments, Mm -hmm. which do nothing positive, I suppose. So anyway, Uh, Micah, how as much as we don't want to be known and and seen and listened to on Twitter, how can (laughs) anybody who, like I said, is just so encouraged by um, the things that you've shared today, how can they get in touch with you? What kind of, what kind of projects are you working on? Like tell, tell everybody about all the beautiful things you're creating. I I appreciate this opportunity. I also recognize I'm not good at it. So (laughs) here it goes. Um, well, I'm only on one social media pr- platform right now, and that is Twitter at J Marie Morgan. Um, and that is, yeah, that's just my, it's not a professional account. That's just, that's just me. So you'll see me tweeting about Jesus, tweeting about racial justice and white supremacy, tweeting about TV shows, <laughs> you know, the whole gambit. Um, but if if you are interested in my professional work, you can find me on LinkedIn, um, Micah J M Morgan, um, and projects that I'm working on. You can find that there. For for me, my um, my therapy work is focused mostly on adults, couples, and teens with a trauma history. Um, so I am what a lot of folks call a, a neuro nerd. I love. Um, helping folks learn about how their nervous system actually shows up in relationship and how trauma and depression and anxiety can kind of complicate that a little bit. So you'll see me talking about that a lot on LinkedIn. So that's where you can find me. I love it. Thank you so much for making space to have this conversation. And it just, it made all of the chaos of today make a little more sense. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. This is this is like a, a warm cup of tea that I could just sit and drink with you. This is lovely. Seriously, this conversation could easily last the next six hours. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Uncomfortable Grace podcast. Each episode is recorded and produced in Medford, Oregon by Kayleen Brown, featuring music by Mixon. We're so grateful you made time to listen to this episode. And if anything stood out, we would love to hear from you. Connect with us on social media and please share this podcast far and wide because everyone needs a little more grace for the middle of their messes. And we've got plenty to go around. Talk to you next time.